Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about lasers. It's going to be a bit of a time capsule show. debated on what to call this inappropriate conversations show and part of that is just the nature of a nostalgia episode i was toying with ideas from just calling it time capsule to looking at obscurity versus timelessness and how those two things work together and some of that was based on a different drummer that i've chosen not to recognize and have perhaps chosen never to recognize in this particular way I'll get to that in the midst of kind of going through what's essentially the catalog of the end of an era. It's an era that's actually been done for quite some time. I could have put this particular topic, the death of the laser video disc as a format, at the very beginning in the very first year of Inappropriate Conversations, going all the way back to 2010. I just chose not to do it. That's partly because of some degree of loyalty on my part, how slow I am to adapt to new technology, bit of a Luddite, but also how slow I am to give up on technology that I've come to rely upon. And I've really experienced that acutely this year, because for me, I've just now, after all of these years, including probably a decade or more, of not putting an audio cassette into a cassette deck anywhere, I've just now decided to get rid of cassettes that I know I'll probably never be playing again. Part of that is inertia, just hanging on to them because there's a level of effort involved in going to the basement and finding all of those audio cassettes and then deciding what to do with them from there. But there was a rummage sale for one of the local charities. It was either a homeless shelter or a church, something along those lines, possibly even a library book sale where the fine print on the call for donations to support that rummage sale included pretty explicitly saying, hey, we're done with the cassette format. <laughs> don't don't bother donating any videotapes or a VHS or any audio cassettes to us. And then it sort of occurred to me that my opportunity to you know, kind of eliminate a category, um, a piece of technology that I barely use or that I don't use at all, and to do so via donation is done. I'd long since given up the idea that doing so versus sale was done. Although I've not necessarily given up the idea that the albums that I still have don't retain some sort of bounce back value, but magnetic tape is a completely different animal. And so I want to talk a little bit about cassette tapes and just kind of make that transition into LaserDisc because both of these are technologies that within very recent months, I finally decided there's no real reason for me to hold on to. And then you get to the to more complicated topic, which I don't know how closely I'll explore today. And well, how do you exactly get rid of it? Because to me, throwing these things in the trash is just beyond the pale. It's hard for me to get my head around. And yet, in the case of audio cassette, I have done it. This nostalgia show is going to be similar to, to some a few years ago. Call it the first part of 2015. January of 2015, I had an episode called Track by Track which was a way of looking at the entire catalog of an artist from the perspective of, well, what was their best first song on any album that they produced? What was their best second song? 
putting something together that's less of a greatest hits collection, but in a way sort of a twist on that concept of a best of collection. That was January of 2015. A few months later, in April of that year, I talked about the box set as a phenomenon, the vinyl box set in particular. And this is going to be similar in feel to those episodes, and maybe similar for a reason. Uh, one of the things I think I was doing earlier in 2015 was trying to deal with some uh, just a difficult political climate that was going on at the time, and to willfully distract with some shows that can only be called nostalgia-based. And I kind of feel the same way here. The next Walk the Earth is going to deal with some very strong uh, political theory and political concept. Very unusual for that podcast format to ask those kinds of thought experiment questions. But that's the plan. And so if if that podcast, Walk the Earth, which shares the same feed at inappropriateconversations.org, is going to zig in a political direction, maybe inappropriate conversations should zag. And so that's part of it. Because what I want to do is a bit of a list show. I want to go through this catalog of laser discs that I'm about to figure out how to eliminate from my collection, eliminate from my ownership, and kind of take one good look at it before they go. I'm doing a similar thing with cassettes. Because magnetic tape is less valuable, frankly less likely to perform if I fired up a tape deck and put it in, there's a greater risk, I think, of a 25-year-old cassette tape breaking than there is of a 20 to 25-year-old laser disc failing the function. The risk with Laserdisc is more whether the player can behave than the brittleness of the of the tape in the case of the audio cassette. But I did, in the process of picking a whole bunch of tapes that were no longer worthy of being donated and just pitching them, segregate out a few to listen to one more time. Some of them were store-bought audio cassettes of things that I have not turned around later and picked up either on CD or on MP3 file. And most of them, though, were homemade. They were this concept of mixtape. And on my personal Facebook page, I've been doing something with those mixtapes, especially the ones where there's a song list. And I can use that to spur my memory of exactly what the songs were and why they were put together as they were. And I've just been sharing something on an almost daily basis on my personal Facebook page to say, hey, here's one of those mixtapes. Here's approximately how old it is. And here's the song list and the song sequence, sort of giving them a nod before they ultimately find their way into the dumpster. And again, this harkens back to that track-by-track idea, because many years ago, apparently going back to 2014 or even 2013, I was doing that same thing on my personal Facebook page, picking an artist, sharing this track-by-track concept, which is explained pretty well in uh, that inappropriate conversations going back to the end of January 2014, just called Track-by-Track. And when that was over, I went through, again, on my personal Facebook page, a concept that I called First Track. This tied in with the Wonders series here on Inappropriate Conversations. Any episode that has some Wonders kind of name to it, O-N-E hyphen D-E-R-S, is a music-based show. And the idea there was songs from artists where I only have one song from them. What is the one song? Why is there only one song? That sort of concept. I handled that on inappropriate conversations. But the flip side of that idea is, what about those artists that have more than one song? And what led me to them? What was the first track from those artists? And I've talked about that a couple of times in past inappropriate conversations with a music focus, sometimes easy to find on the website at inappropriateconversations.org because more often than not, not always, but more often than not, the different drummer is a musician. And there's an an about 
section on the right navigation that is category index, and that is a category index of uh, descriptors of the different drummers. So clicking on musician doesn't necessarily mean that the episode of Inappropriate Conversations from the past is about music, but the different drummer has something to do with music. Uh, today's different drummer will have something to do with music as well, but I don't want to get ahead of myself. It was enough to explain the idea that at this moment of obscurity, at this moment of pitching an entire technology, an entire, an entire kind of music recording, how did I want to memorialize that? What was my last look? And what element of that is, to some degree, timeless? Because it may not be necessary that I hold on to the magnetic tape of a particular, for want of a better word, mixtape from my past. It may be enough to hold on to the playlist. Because today in the digital streaming kind of world we're in, playlist is how we do the idea of mixtape. And that if you actually had a uh, a better way than we do today, I'm not saying it's necessarily terrible, but we need a better way than we do today of crafting together that playlist and then giving it to someone, saying, I think you should listen to this. If that improves just a little bit, we may be back to where we were at the beginning of the dawn of recording on magnetic tape and the idea of making a mixtape either for yourself or for somebody else. So that's how I'm getting rid of magnetic tape. The VHS tapes are generally speaking just going. I may mention a couple of VHS tapes along the way here, but generally speaking, I didn't stop to memorialize any of them, although there are many that I haven't thrown away yet because first, there's just only so much you can pitch at any one given time. And second, there's still an emotional attachment to some of these movies. And that may be where to start, on this idea of Laserdisc. Because at the time that the Laserdisc technology was introduced, the appeal to me, the goal for me, had more to do with timelessness than anything else. I was looking for a more durable copy of something than the actual format of magnetic tape, for one thing. But for another thing... I enjoyed the idea that Laserdisc was going to be creating the best available copy of something. Now, technology has moved forward. We've gone from Laserdisc to DVD to high-definition DVD to Blu-ray and beyond. In some ways, streaming, even HD streaming, is taking a little bit of a step back in quality but forward in convenience. And Laserdisc had, as its biggest albatross, the problem of convenience. You could put in one videotape recorded on SLP mode if you didn't really care about video quality, picture quality, and make six and a half hours of recordings of, of a thing. In my case, I made, again, 13 episodes probably fit on one side of a VHS tape of television broadcasts of the classic 1960s cartoon Johnny Quest. And I've talked about that on past inappropriate conversations, especially with my kids, because my kids, to my delight, jumped on the Johnny Quest bandwagon pretty freely, that this cartoon made back in 1964 and 65 was still holding up reasonably well. And the thing about the the form of animation there is that it didn't really matter how high def the quality of the video representation was. The more important thing for me was getting as many of them as I can on a single tape. Laserdisc, and I've got a couple of Johnny Quest Laserdiscs, that's going to be a big part of the different drummer segment today, you can really only get a couple episodes on a side of a disc. And depending on the way that disc was recorded, there may only be room on a side of a disc for one. So Laserdisc was always about playing and flipping and playing and flipping, ending up with two disc sets, or in some cases, three disc sets, to capture a movie of a particular length or a rendering of that movie at a particular quality. Because back then, we, we called them big music, 
the laser discs because big movies rather because they were as big as a 12 inch album but they were you know more of a what we call a dvd format a 12 inch sort of dvd kind of a format and my kids when they were little would just call them big movies you know if we were going to watch a movie we were going to watch a tape or something on tv or were we going to watch one of the big movies and I'll get to the kids segment near the end. I want to start with the adult pieces, the movies that were made and meant for adults. But there's a really interesting divide that I think has to be understood right at the beginning of, of Laserdisc. Because as somebody who both bought and sold them, I was identifying quickly two different kinds of customers. And it's not unlike the divide that you saw a couple decades earlier with VHS versus Betamax and the two different kinds of customers. Maybe I'll go there and kind of restate my my philosophy of the VHS format uh, versus the Betamax format when it comes to video cassettes, because generally speaking, Betamax was more about what I would call the quality, both the quality of the material and the quality of the rendering of the material. Most people you talk to, people who are more video files than I will ever be, would say that the video picture, the quality, the playback, the rendering of Betamax was superior. It wasn't just that it was a tighter, more compact cassette, for want of a better word, but it actually had a better video quality to it. And you tended to see the early days of Betamax leaning toward things like um, opera rather than rock concerts, or uh, ballet, or Academy Award-winning films, or classic, hard-to-find foreign titles, whereas VHS quickly ventured into what might be more mass-market releases. And the joke I tell, although I believe it's true is that VHS also was, for whatever reason, the chosen format of the uh, West Coast American porn industry. So you ended up with a format becoming successful, in part because of the lowbrow focus of the material that was recorded there, versus the other extreme. You know, Laserdisc, in every format since, has sort of been a blend of those two. But with Laserdisc, to me, the question's always been, are you looking for that cinema experience? Most Laserdisc customers were home cinema kind of customers. The kind of people who would have either a theater or their own makeshift version of a movie theater in their home. And they were looking for the kinds of uh, video and audio playback that would capture the digital capabilities there. Uh, Movies like Heat, for example, which might otherwise be a somewhat ordinary crime thriller, had a certain color palette that was very interesting to cinemaphiles. And when I saw it at a friend's house, one of those friends who was the home cinema kind of guy, the thing that I noticed first was the sound quality. He had a, a digital surround system to play when he put on laser discs. And in certain scenes, especially the bank robbery escape shootout scenes, you can actually hear shell casings falling behind you from some of the ambient speakers that he had in his room. And so for th- this friend of mine, the focus was all about the picture quality, the sound quality, creating a movie theater experience. I had a different point of view. For me, by and large, it wasn't so much about getting the most pristine, perfect copy with the best possible playback, as it was trying to preserve the best available copy of something from a timelessness perspective, from a time capsule perspective. I was interested in it lasting forever and being rendered as well as possible. And here's where I think you kind of catch the difference. If I were to go and buy a copy of a classic silent film, on Laserdisc. And I've got a series on silent film we'll kind of talk through from a quick list perspective. My goal was not, well, I would never not buy a great Charlie Chaplin movie on Laserdisc or now on DVD or Blu-ray because, well, the quality wasn't good back then, therefore the quality couldn't possibly be great now. 
And given the choice between picking up a movie like City Lights by Charlie Chaplin or the latest Bond film, I was always going to lean towards City Lights because I'd get a a somewhat more permanent copy of a great film in the best possible condition it could ever be in. And my friend would say, well, no to that. He would rather have a Bond film that was regarded generally as mediocre or even schlock because, heck, it's a Bond film. Lots of action, lots of visuals, lots of things to hear and see. It's all about... Uh, sort of the stimulus of it, rather than maybe what I would describe more as the the artistry of it. So I had that bias. And it makes sense with that disclaimer right up front, that first off, I'm buying somewhat for a young kid audience in some cases, and also because I wasn't that much worried about getting sort of the, uh, I guess in music, this would be like the original master quadrophenia sound version of an album. If there was a quadrophenia version of an album that had truncated one of the last verses off of the record, I didn't want it. I wanted the whole record, even in a less quality or even a subpar sound quality, than getting one that had this incredible sound but left off a track. You know, so that's kind of your difference in mentality there. I guess the thing that makes sense to start with here, though, is this idea of favorites. And then I'm going to move into categories and, to a certain degree, lists. So let me start with favorites Go to a quick promo, and then we'll take some time to think about things in that context and dive into the end or the death of the Laserdisc. Because what I would describe as maybe my three or four favorite films of all time, I don't own them all on Laserdisc. And that in and of itself is somewhat interesting. Even in recent inappropriate conversations, I've mentioned the movie Reds and debate whether to call that a favorite film or not. Uh, it's up there, I guess would be the way I would put it. My favorite director is Luis Buñuel, and, and my favorite film from him, not necessarily his best work or his most artistic work, but the one that I enjoy the most is The Phantom of Liberty, which is right there near the end of his career. I do have many laser discs from Luis Buñuel, which gives me a chance here in a minute to talk about sort of the different sides and facets of this fantastic director. Um, Wings of Desire may be the best title that I don't have on Laserdisc that I arguably should. Uh, I don't know that I'm as big of a fan of Vim Vendors as I am of Luis Manuel, but on the, at the same time, you know, Wings of Desire is definitely one of my favorite films. But if I had to pick one and point to one, and to have it be less of a niche title and more something that you could argue should have universal appeal, a movie that should be entertaining and not just quote-unquote art, my favorite might be Brazil. And here in a minute... That's where we'll start, with the time capsule of Laserdisc. The Last Ovation Podcast presents short stories on various celebrities, where I tell you about their lives, careers, and tragic deaths. Past episodes have featured stars like Sal Mineo, Dorothy Dandridge, and Brad Renfro. Those and more can be found by visiting my website at thelastovation.com. You can find The Last Ovation at iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn Radio, and any other major podcast directory. Thank you for listening. So I'm looking at something like 174 Laserdisc titles that I need to figure out what I'm going to do with if I decide that I'm no longer committed to keeping this player running and that I'm no longer persuaded that the shelf life of this particular technology is real, that there won't be a resurgence. To me, that's obvious. But I'm also now dealing with titles that I've had in my possession long enough to be a little bit wondering or concerned about you know degradation. It's not as fragile as magnetic tape, but I also don't know that it's as permanent as was originally advertised. 
to deal with this, I think I got to break those 174 into down to a set of categories. And there may be more than 20, broadly speaking, categories, but just to try to group it together in a way that it can be spoken of, spoken of intelligently. And Brazil for me is the first one. Now, it's going to be interesting to talk about from the perspective of inappropriate conversations and the history of this podcast, because it's absolutely true that as it turned out, the very first director I named as a different drummer, a different drummer as a director, was Luis Manuel. It would have been late July, early August of 2010, uh, episode uh, 22, Art and the Strange Bedfellows. The different drummer was Luis Manuel. And just a couple, three weeks later, I hit Terry Gilliam in Inappropriate Conversations 25. Uh, Questions We Ought to Ask Ourselves, I think was the rough title of that, late August of that same year, 2010. And, you know, as I remember back, I don't know that those directors were planned to be first, although they should be, because from a Laserdisc perspective, at the very least, they're my absolute favorites. As I recall, somewhere in the first couple of months, I'd actually planned to hit the Cohen brothers first, but it just didn't work out that way. Instead of naming them in Inappropriate Conversations 9 for an overview of the decades, uh, honoring them for how well they've done with time represented in film, uh, they're not the kind of people that I think you think of for like historical fiction, per se, but they absolutely do capture time and place in the way they've put together their various movies across various genre. But instead, I ended up looking to film editor D.D. D. Allen, who had recently died. And I'm very comfortable naming the editor of the movie Reds before I got to any directors. And later on, I'd get to the Cohen brothers in a way that I kind of really liked. It was the first time I looked at questions related to homosexuality and, frankly, how do we... How do we deal with that? How do how do we at the time back in 2010 get our minds around it? Because we were in the midst of a massive cultural and perceptive shift of that question of what does it mean to be straight? What does it mean to be gay? And what does it mean to manage a fair, uh, just, due process equality of sorts through that? And I had just seen The Man Who Wasn't There. And anyone who's never seen the film The Man Who Wasn't There should should see it. It's a great Coen Brothers film, underrated in my opinion. And also look at it from the perspective of latent homosexuality. It's not advertised that way from a film perspective, but it's definitely a piece of that film, in my opinion. So the first two things I want to talk about are director-based. I want to look at uh, the very best Laserdisc I ever bought, the most expensive Laserdisc I ever bought, and one Laserdisc that by itself, this full three-disc set CAV version of Brazil with commentary and extras and all that other sort of stuff that even though I've since replaced that with almost a like for like DVD version Christmas gift from my brother many years ago in fact that didn't immediately lead me to say well I should liquidate this laser disc because the resale market for laser disc has always been almost non-existent so my best most expensive purchase ever Brazil the hardest laser disc to get rid of might actually be Brazil and if you haven't seen Terry Gilliam's Brazil I highly recommend it. It could be my favorite film of all time. It is definitely my favorite neo-surrealist film of all time. Other Gilliam titles that I own that i got to figure out what to do with now, The Fisher King, and, oddly, Monty Python and the Holy Grail and the Monty Python Live at the Hollywood Bowl recording need to give director credit, or at least a director nod, to Terry Gilliam. The official director credit for Monty Python and the Holy Grail is both Terry Gilliam and Terry Jones, And uh, Terry Hughes is given credit as the director for Live at the Hollywood Bowl, but the collaborative nature of Monty Python as a troupe to some degree means that anytime you're capturing them live, you're recording a concert, if you will. 
you're dealing with director director level participation from almost every member of the group. So, four entries for Gilliam, two truly his vision and his movies, and two of them part of his collaboration with Monty Python. Then we hit Luis Buñuel, and Luis Buñuel is going to get me into a little bit of a conversation about the process of selecting different drummers and my perspective on what it means to delay a topic. But first, let's just list the movies. Un Chien Andalou, Los Hurdos, Los Olvidados, The Diary of a Chambermaid, That Obscure Object of Desire, The Phantom of Liberty, and Belle de Jour. That is a fairly large number of titles that have been purchased from movies about by Luis Manuel. Some of them were bought used, some of them were bought new. The ones that were bought new were probably bought at what might be a normal high-end VHS price, you know, $29.99, $24.99. But Belle de Jour was more like a $50 title, and that is the other one I would cite as a Laserdisc that I bought at full price at a very expensive rate. Because being in the retail business at the time, and not jumping onto Laserdisc early, but jumping onto Laserdisc at a point where it had already established that it had an end-to-end life cycle, meant that most of my purchases were coming at the point that these titles were moving out of regular sales and into clearance sales. And I'll talk a little bit when I get to a few more directors about some of the real opportunities that were put before me there to take advantage of clearance sales. But I was unwilling to wait, and I was unwilling to risk not getting an allocation of an uh, end-of-life version of Belle de Jour. Uh, when that one was made available, I might have been one of the first people in North America to make a purchase, and I made it on Laserdisc. And my feelings about the movie Belle de Jour are that from an outsider's perspective, if you wanted a nice, easy entry point into the work of, Lu- of Luis Buñuel, into the surrealism that we call Buñuelian today, that it's a bit of a minefield, right? I mean, for someone who doesn't like silent film, jumping into Unshin Andalou first is an absolute, well, it might might be accurately described by some people as a nightmare. It's one of my favorite of all of his movies. It only takes a 15 or 16 minute commitment. But if you don't understand surrealism, if you have no tolerance for silent film, that could be some tough sledding. And even the Mexico cinema era, where movies like Los Avedados come from, there's a video quality issue. It's not just black and white, but it's kind of a kind of a grainy and rough black and white. It's not a pretty picture. But then you get to some other films like Diary of a Chambermaid, where the surrealism is barely there, only really in touches. Or That Obscure Object of Desire, where it's more of a joke with casting than genuine surrealism. And then my favorite is The Phantom of Liberty, which, of course, is that's that's definitely more like the discrete term of the bourgeoisie, or even in Shenandoah, in terms of being just heads-up, straight-up, non-stop Dadaism. It's almost sketches and skits, as it is a single dramatic piece of film, of mise-en-scene. On the other hand, Belle de Jour tells a story. So Belle de Jour, there is a throughput, there's a line, there's a dramatic situation. It's become a bit of a cliche now, but in 1967, I don't know that a, a timid housewife who goes to work as a prostitute is was that old and cliched by then. And the other thing, besides the directing of Bunuel and his mentality you had going for you was the performance of Catherine Deneuve, or just even the physical appearance of Catherine Deneuve. I was going to name Deneuve as the different drummer for this look back at Laserdiscs. It was my way of restating the importance of Luis Bunuel as a different drummer, and someone who I think who maybe was a little bit underrated in his career for working with actors. It wasn't that he was the kind of director you would put a 
a poor actor into the hands of and expect them to render something beautiful. It was more than given great talent, he got great results. And I'm not here to dispute whether or not Catherine Deneuve is a great talent as an actor. Uh, her work is prolific, and uh, she was a bit of a timeless beauty, in many ways probably still is, and that has something to do with it as well, that casting her in this role brought a almost a baseline level of surrealist irony to it. But here's my issue. As I'm making this recording today, Deneuve has been perhaps the most public face of a group of French actresses who have essentially come along to defend the Harvey Weinsteins of the world. Now, that's a little bit unfair to both Deneuve and to Weinstein's detractors. It's not exactly that she said, hey, this guy's getting a bad rap. What you hear is one of those introductory clauses. So the compound sentence with a big old butt in the middle of it. With, well, you know, I'm not defending Harvey, but... And then everything after it is essentially saying, good old boys this, good old days that. And then maybe someone like Deneuve didn't mind being chased around a few desks or asked to... You know, take her clothes off in order to get a role. But the thing that she naively doesn't understand, and that the other French actresses who signed this sort of defense of people who are grabby, handsy, or, um, you know, go in for a kiss even when they're told no, this perception of the playfulness of what arguably today is viewed as sexual assault, I guess the problem that I've got with it is that if you have the status, the stature, the resume, if you will, the appearance of Catherine Deneuve, you cannot assume that everyone else gets treated the exact same way that you do. Let me tell the story this way a little bit. And if this comes off as slightly sexist, I apologize. I absolutely don't intend it to be that way. But I moved school districts when I was growing up in a family where we talked about just about everything. That inappropriate conversations goes all the way back to the early part of my childhood. I could ask questions. It was allowed. And after what might be the 7th grade into the 8th grade, right in the middle of what you'd call junior high school, uh, we changed school districts. And people that I had grown up with, that I'd known from kindergarten on, I was suddenly disconnected from. And, you know, I was also probably in that 12, 13-year age at the time of that transition, meaning I had become very aware of the secondary sexual characteristics of even the very young girls who were my peers at the time. I had a point of view about who was the most attractive and who was the least attractive, and I had a point of view about had I stayed in that school district, who I was most interested in, you know, seeing in a swimsuit someday and who I was maybe least interested in. And I was very surprised that when you hear the rumor mill and the gossip and the feedback from the other side of town, um, I was very surprised to find out that the first girl in my high school who got pregnant while in high school from the school district I no longer went to was one of the least attractive girls that I could have thought of. I mean, of all the ones, my my thought and my question to my mother was, I'm very surprised that it was this particular young lady who ended up getting pregnant first because she always struck me as being less sexually attractive than the others. And my mom's answer was true then and applies in an ironic way to the conversation that has been started by these French actresses. Her point was, she's not at all surprised that somebody who wasn't valued and treasured for her appearance, went further than maybe the other girls would have to get attention that she perhaps desired. That in other words, uh, the pressure that was placed on her sexually was probably a lot higher than the pressure that was placed on somebody who was instant arm candy. And so here you go. Not to be uh, dismissive or in any way ugly toward Catherine Deneuve, short of saying she isn't a different drummer this week and she's not going to be one, in my opinion. 
ever, perhaps, is that Deneuve was more in that instant arm candy mode. And that gave her a certain amount of cushion, a certain amount of leeway, a certain amount of credibility if she actually did decide to issue a forceful no, an unretractable no, a baseline final position that I'm saying no. Consent as experienced by someone who looks like Deneuve, probably very different than consent as experienced by most of the other actresses in the history of cinema. And the fact that she does not recognize that, frankly, is one of the ugliest things about her as a person and as a performer. She's out. I'm going to move more toward a kid Laserdisc focus to select a different drummer this week. But having said that, Belle de Jour is still one of the the treasured movies in my collection. It's a movie that I've once made a three and a half hour drive one way to see when it was only available in uh, retro cinema and art house, you know, rebroadcast cinema. And obviously, uh, making that kind of a drive to see a foreign film tells you that I would spend that kind of money to buy a foreign film as well. But here's where I diverged more from my friends than anything else I can name. It was the use of Laserdisc to purchase silent movies. Because to these friends of mine, silent movies seemed like a complete waste of the technology. The Laserdisc was going to render these amazing Indiana Jones moments that would put you right in that cave being chased directly by that boulder with the sound of it rolling down the hill coming at you from all angles in the surround sound of your digital home cinema. And silent movies wouldn't have the sound at all. Maybe even a scratchy and grainy attempt to recreate an original classical music soundtrack behind the images, and the images themselves were more likely to be sepia-toned and fading in and out. But my goal was not to create a home theater experience. My goal was to say, hey, what if we're at a point in history where you could no longer get a copy of these original films, some great and some reprehensible, by directors who are talented regardless of how you view their work? Directors like Sergei Eisenstein from Russia or D.W. Griffith from the United States. So the silent films that I ended up acquiring, and again, often for a song because they weren't the right they weren't the right kind of titles for the majority of this uh, high tech high def audience i picked up battleship potemkin potemkin from eisenstein the birth of a nation juliet and bethulia and hearts of the world from dw griffith the general from buster keaton probably my favorite of this lot the gold rush by charlie chaplin the cabinet of dr caligari by robert vine the silent version by John Robertson of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, the Barrymore version from an actor perspective. So these are silent films, movies that I would have bought that, frankly, I don't think I had very many, if any, customers who were even remotely interested in. And it tells you as much as anything you might imagine about the difference in perspective between how I perceived and valued the time capsule quality of Laserdisc versus how other people perceived and valued the home cinema quality of Laserdisc. But something happened. Something earth-shaking happened right in the middle of my tenure as a record store manager carrying and promoting this relatively new technology of Laserdisc. And I say that it shook the world because it quite literally was an earthquake. Previously on Starbase 66. My two-and-a-half-year-old daughter loves Darth Vader. You know, it, it, and the other day she was playing with a little Darth Vader. One of our, we have a few Darth Vader toys around. And she's like, Darth Vader, Darth Vader. <laughs> it's adorable when she does it. And I was like, Do you want to? Do you want to see Darth Vader on TV? Yeah. And so I dug out the Empire Strikes Back, and we just cut straight to the the saber battle with her and Luke. 
all through the thing, she kept going, Luke, stop it. <laughs> Luke, stop it. Protect Darth Vader. <laughs> Listen to Star Wars 66, the international Star Trek and genre fiction podcast on simplysyndicated.com, SoundCloud, and iTunes. With my other focus being foreign film, the thing you quickly realize is that foreign movies, art house movies, are always going to cost a little bit more, or uh, at the very least be on the same at the high end of the retail range of making a purchase. That's only natural. You've got uh, a different, more complicated set of negotiations when it comes to the rights and ownership of the intellectual property. You have a smaller audience by its nature. You tend to have a wealthier audience, which probably wouldn't have described me at the time, but those were my tastes. And often, the only way to get any of these titles is to get these titles from something like the Criterion Collection or from the Janus Archives. And either one of those two is going to also add a certain level of surcharge, partly because of there's a, an undeniable quality that is brought to those productions. Extras now for DVDs we sort of take for granted, but back in the day... Extras on Laserdisc could not be guaranteed and were a relatively new idea. The entire concept of a director commentary version is a Laserdisc idea. And sometimes that would play a factor. You'd decide whether to buy something that was normally a retail of $29.99 if it was just the movie, but you might turn around and spend double that to buy a version that was the movie, but also had a director commentary soundtrack on it where you could play the Laserdisc with either one of the audio feeds or even one that had a booklet or a, a chapter at the end after the credits rolled with some bonus features. Today, those kinds of bonus features, um, the film preview reel from different countries all over the world, for example, show up in an extras menu where a DVD is navigated to pick from those things. But back then, typically in Laserdisc, the movie would show, and at the end of the movie, there was a whole set of extras, and you could choose to watch them or skip past them as you saw fit. I bring it up now because the record company that I worked for was perhaps one of the best, maybe actually the best, of all American retail of music software, uh, music and video software, of dealing with closeouts. Where some of our competitors, either because of the small size of their, their actual store base or because of just the risk of buying closeouts, would prefer to stay at the regular margin rates of new full-price material. Uh, in the record business, for example, just using music, um, huge advantage in that most of the product was bought from domestic suppliers. I'm talking about record companies like Sony and Universal. And most of them would take back anything that was tried in stores and did not sell. So if you picked up, you know, hundreds of copies of a new, uh, new Kids on the Block CD and that ship had sailed and that audience had cooled or grown out of the band for a time, then you could return it straight to the record label, get full credit back, meaning you weren't dealing with the cost of markdowns on very many of your purchases of new product. But once you decided to buy the closeouts, once you were buying cutout albums and hole-punched cassettes, things of that nature, well, then now you're dealing with you bought it, you own it, you deal with it. The company I worked for just did this extremely well and had a reputation as being one of the places you would call if you had what might be described as an opportunity buy or a cutout or closeout buy. Well, somewhere in the early to mid part of the 1990s, a massive earthquake hit Whittier, California. 
and that earthquake while doing uh, tremendous damage. And as part of you know newsreel footage you see today, if they show pictures of relatively recent earthquakes and um, highways being ripped up and you know so forth, you're often seeing that part of California at that particular point in time. And one of the things that happened from a damage perspective was serious, severe, like maybe this building needs to come down kind of damage to a warehouse that Criterion Collection and other folks were using to store laser discs, meaning that a ton of laser disc titles that had starting retail prices of forty-four ninety-five and up were needing to be liquidated as quickly as humanly possible. That the building had to be emptied so that repairs could either be done or demolition and rebuilding could be done. All the results of this earthquake, and as a result of that, titles that were costing fifty to a hundred to one hundred and fifty bucks a piece on Laserdisc became available through my retail chain at fifteen dollars and under. And I was aware of it, and I did what I could as a store manager to make sure I was up- obtaining as many of these titles as possible, because there was an overlap of sorts between my home cinema fan friends and my time capsule well, myself, as a time capsule nostalgia person, where we might be simultaneously interested in the same thing. They're the same folks who might scoff at something like the original 1920 black and white silent film version of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde were interested in The Seventh Seal by Ingmar Bergman. They had time for that. They had time for the oldest black and white titles by Stanley Kubrick, not just the newer color titles, that there is a certain cachet related to famous directors and their famous films. And it wasn't like the people who were, again, your your aficionados, your, your home cinema enthusiasts, had zero patience for things like foreign films and black and white films. It just wasn't their their first focus. But there was a Venn diagram where me and these friends lived together inside a lot of the material that was going to be coming to and through my company's uh, supply chain of closeout titles of brand new releases or, or relatively recent releases of the highest conceivable quality from art house and other cinema due to an earthquake in California. So as a result of that, not just my friend's collections, but my collections were augmented pretty quickly and reasonably well with a group of titles that I'm going to organize by director. And to me, uh, if you're not into foreign films, I'll do this as quickly as I can. But if you are, I think you're going to recognize how difficult it is for me to let this go. Because if my only copy of movies like The Seventh Seal and Persona by Ingmar Bergman are coming from Laserdisc, it's just that much harder to walk away from even a dying technology, or for me, a completely dead technology. The other titles from Ingmar Bergman that I got this way, Fanny and Alexander, I've since replaced by a much better DVD, and From the Life of the Marionettes, which I never watched. I never got around to it. It was in color, and an Academy Award-winning kind of film, but it had a dubbed soundtrack rather than the original Swedish, and I think that always... I always picked elsewhere when I was deciding something I wanted to watch that was just for me, because... The uh, content was too um, adult-focused for my kids, and frankly, not that interesting to my wife. So that's the Bergman set. From Francois Truffaut, Small Change, Jewels and Gem, and Shoot the Piano Player. I put these in order of preference, I believe, because Small Change was, first and foremost, this was a foreign film that both my wife and my kids from time to time would enjoy. If you've never seen Small Change by Truffaut, it's worth the time to track down. It's a film made entirely... Of, of kid actors from a kid perspective. I mean, there's adults in the movie, but the interactions between kids and adults are, are, again, focused on the kids, ranging from very, very young 
to um, you know middle school or the beginning of high school, and sweetly told, uh, it's a PG movie in every conceivable way, and including one of my favorite chapters in all of my laser discs, a chapter called Gregory Goes Boom. And uh, if you haven't seen Small Change, again, it's worth the time. For me, Stanley Kubrick on Laserdisc was about getting back to the beginning, getting back to the roots, and the two movies I have, Paths of Glory and Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. Those are the two. I'd seen Dr. Strangelove before acquiring the Laserdisc, but I never saw Paths of Glory. The, buying this Laserdisc was how I saw the movie Paths of Glory. To veer away from the foreign titles for just a second and go into some uh, classic Americans, maybe a little bit more accessible in terms of well, what was I thinking and why was I buying the titles I was buying, Sidney Lumet. Um, two distinct parts of his career, in fact. Twelve Angry Men, near the beginning of his career. Network, near the end. I'm not against entertainment in any way either, right? To me, both of those titles are very accessible. Nowhere near as accessible as the two titles I have from Harold Ramis as a director. Groundhog Day, National Lampoon's Vacation. I also have a couple titles from Steven Spielberg. And again, sort of running you know, more more serious and more recent. Jurassic Park, a classic example of a Laserdisc title, and Schindler's List. I also have a documentary about Schindler that I bought in connection with picking up the Schindler's List. Um, I kind of bought them both at the same time. Jurassic Park is one of my favorite stories, though. I, um, I'm not the world's biggest fan of the movie. I mean, I think it's great, and if, if someone needed me to grant them a whole series of arguments, I'd be willing to grant almost every single one of them. It's undeniably entertaining. Special effects at the time were groundbreaking. Help redefine the way we categorize cinema. The fact that today, even going to a movie in a theater, you get some sense of whether it's got a PG-13 or R rating based on violence or drug use or nudity or sexuality. Jurassic Park has a lot to do with that level of specificity. It was important, I think, for Spielberg and for the production company that everyone know that it was rated uh, PG-13 because it was scary, um, because of uh, the... Uh, the, the, the dinosaurs itself. The people needed to understand that it wasn't like filled with tons of profanity. There was no nudity. There were no sexual situations per se. I mean, a, a lawyer on the crapper getting eaten by a dinosaur pretty much sums up the whole PG-13 rating. But I don't think I ever spent any time with the Jurassic Park title listening to the director's commentary on my, on my laser desk. What I do have, though, is a memory of my son and a friend of his who was just a year or two younger so say you got like a, a 10-year-old and an 8-year-old or 11-year-old and a 9-year-old at the same time, watching the movie with the family for the first time on our relatively big screen TV, the laser disc player, and I wished, just a few minutes into it, that I had somehow figured out how to microphone those two boys, because their director commentary soundtrack, in my opinion, to Jurassic Park, would have been better than any director commentary soundtrack coming out of Spielberg himself. It's no slight to Spielberg. Again, I'm willing to stipulate to his talent. But the, the reaction of these boys to seeing this movie for the first time and the things that they were saying to each other about it and the, the guesswork that they were doing about what the plot was going to do and what was going to happen next and what something meant was, to me, more entertaining than the movie itself. Letting go of my box set of Jurassic Park in CAV format is going to be tough for me to do because it's going to hearken that memory of seeing my son and his friend comment their way through a movie. I'm normally a don't-talk-the-movies-playing kind of guy. I'm not the uh, I'm one of the more intolerant people of jibber-jabber at the movie theater, but this was good jibber-jabber. Back to foreign um, uh, directors for a moment. Akira Kurosawa, I wish I'd had more Laserdiscs, but over the, over the years I was only able to pick up two. They're both wonderful in their own way. 
Akira Kurosawa's Dreams, one of the titles that I picked up, and I'm, I'm sure more than one of my more movie-file friends picked up, because the colors themselves are beautiful, and Dreams works as a silent movie if you're really just into maximizing what is possible and the digital reproduction of an incredible image. Dreams, for example, has a moment in it where Martin Scorsese, as a guest actor in Kurosawa's film, plays Van Gogh, who has a surrealist moment and literally is wandering through his pictures where Kurosawa and his art directors have recreated through set design and art decoration the paintings of many of the paintings of uh, Van Gogh and Scorsese playing the part of Van Gogh is wandering through his own paintings. It's just visually brilliant. To me, though, the better of the two and one of my favorite of all Kurosawa's films is a black and white movie called High and Low. It's interesting not because the the images and the cinematography is necessarily all that brilliant. It's just interesting in that I couldn't pick up a copy on of High and Low on VHS at the time if I'd wanted to. It became available to me on Laserdisc. I bought it on somewhat of a lark, and I'm so glad that I did, and I'm so glad that I saw it. It's a wonderful piece of drama about what happens if you're a very wealthy man, and you find out your son has been kidnapped, and paying the ransom for your son is essentially going to, through some leveraging issues, bankrupt you, ruin you completely. You're going to lose control of your company, and you're also going to have to give up a ton of individual wealth along the way in order in order to save your son. If this sounds like the plot of a relatively recent movie, I haven't seen the film released in 2017 to know how good the comparison works. My guess is not well at all, because the crucial plot twist in the first act of High and Low is that what happens if you find out that in a case of mistaken identity, the kidnapped child is not the son of the very rich business owner. It's instead the son of his chauffeur. And is he willing to give up his entire fortune to save the son of an employee? when he was already questioning whether he should give up his entire fortune to save his own son. High and low. Two by Andrei Tarkovsky, Solaris, and My Name is Ivan. One of them I'd seen before and bought on Laserdisc. The other one is another copy that I've owned and not yet gotten around to watching in all these years. Istvan Zabo, an Academy Award-winning director from Hungary. Uh, two titles from him, Father and Hanyasen neither one of which was the Academy Award winner, by the way. Uh, Mephisto, I believe, is what he won for Best Foreign Film. Bernardo Bertolucci, The Last Tango in Paris. At the time I bought it, I had no idea that some of the things which have come out later in terms of the uh, the actual an actual rape occurring on screen, I was not aware of that at the time. And The Grim Reaper, also a film dealing with rape. I did not watch The Grim Reaper at the time that I was a regular viewer of, of Laserdisc, Again, I had it in the collection. It was ready and available for me at any time I might go there, but unfortunately, I never went there. I couldn't watch it in front of the kids. My wife wasn't interested. It sat on the shelf. Carlos Sara, favorite of mine from his surrealist era. Not necessarily my favorite from what he does with dance on film, but he does dance on film well, and he's done it many times. One of the first examples of that I do have on Laserdisc, Blood Wedding, and I also have Icarmelia. And then lastly, in the director segment, just a quick shout-out to Roger Corman. I've got a few of those classic horror films as Laserdisc Twin Packs, where a Roger Corman movie was being paired with another similar kind of horror film, but not of the same director. One of them is The Haunted Palace, paired with Curse of the Crimson Altar. The other is The Tomb of Lygia, a Poe story, uh, paired with The Conqueror Worm, an adaptation of Poe Ideas. 
So I would describe those as the classic director segment. Not all of them coming from that Whittier, California earthquake, and not all of my purchases from that era were in this director segment. But I felt I needed to, whenever I had a couple great titles from a particular director, to sort of put them together. All under the the idea of classic films. Because, again, my, my mentality as a collector was preserving the classics, not so much you know, buying the the newest, biggest, latest, greatest thing. Let me just quickly roll through some of those other classics that I picked up along the way, or things that I would classify as classics, crossing numerous genre, and not, and by all means, not exclusively foreign. Many of them are American American releases, Hollywood releases, even. Aliens, Annie Hall, Apollo thirteen, La Ventura, the Michelangelo Antonioni movie, Ben Hur, The Big Sleep. City Slickers, Closely Watched Trains, Die Hard, The Dirty Dozen, Easy Rider, Fellini Satyricon, A Few Good Men, A Fish Called Wanda, Fletch, Gandhi, Gone with the Wind. Gone with the Wind is really not a movie that I enjoy all that much, but again, this concept of preserving. Plus, if somebody's going to give you a release that originally was $100 and now has been marked down to $9.88, then why not, right? Uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the 1950s Don Siegel original. Journey to the Center of the Earth, also the uh, the older, in this case, 1960s original, directed by Henry Levin. North by Northwest, that one was a box set. Uh, the Revenge of the Pink Panther might be my favorite Pink Panther movie. I know it's not viewed widely as the best, but it might be my favorite. Rome, Open City. Roberto Rossellini filmed this on the streets of Rome at the time that... It was falling to fascism, it was falling to Nazism. Sex, Lies, and Videotape. A couple of Sherlock Holmes entries from the uh, Rathbone and you know, Bruce era. The House of Fear, The Woman in Green, both in this case directed by William Neal. Uh, Slacker, the Richard Linklater film, one of his early films, as a matter of fact. The Sting, Umberto D., and While You Were Sleeping. If that last one being viewed as part of the classic section is controversial... Uh, let me veer into guilty pleasures. You can decide which where you think it ought to be placed. My guilty pleasures. Uh, Back from Eternity. A remake of a Lucille Ball film, but this one made about two decades later and starring Anita Ekberg. Anita Ekberg is a former different drummer, and that's the nature of the guilty pleasure here. Birdie. I view Alan Parker as a great director. I don't think it's a guilty pleasure because of Alan Parker. But the reasons I like it are because of more or less guilty pleasure reasons. I don't know that I could call it a great film. I certainly wouldn't elevate it to the point of classic, but it has a handful of scenes that I really, truly enjoy. And I don't even know if I'm going to elevate it to say I enjoy it because of the quality of the acting. It's more the scenarios. Falling Down, another movie I enjoy because of the scenarios. Jacob's Ladder, a nice piece of American neo-surrealism. Phantasm Two, by far my favorite of the entire Phantasm series, and one of my favorite horror films ever. Sorcerer, uh, the William Friedkin remake of The Wages of Fear, the uh, Henri Georges Clouseau adventure film, and Southern Comfort by Walter Hill. And then I had another series of films that I just didn't know how to classify them. Um, they may be classics, they may be guilty pleasures. I just maybe I didn't feel strongly enough about them as a title either way to put them in either one of those categories. So I'll just rattle them off here: Barton Fink, Death Row Game Show, Metropolitan. Railroaded, an early film noir by Anthony Mann. Secret Honor by Robert Altman, a uh, dramatization of the last days of Nixon. Summer by Eric Romer, one of his morality plays. And Toys by Barry Levinson. The reality is that the film Toys, starring 
Robin Williams, is a movie I actually don't like. But many of these Laserdiscs were bought for the purpose of seeing them for the first time. Some of the foreign titles, in fact, bought because I didn't think I would ever be able to see them any other way. And Toys was one of those that I bought having not seen it. And had I seen it first, say in the theaters, I wouldn't have bought it. And now, perhaps to my discredit, a series of movies that I never watched or never fully watched. I've mentioned a few along the way that in other categories of looking at this time capsule, of looking at these laser discs before they leave my world, um, the ones that I think I struggle with the most are the ones that I bought intending to watch and never got around to. Examples there include The Crime of Unsure Lange by Jean Renoir, The Fable of the Beautiful Pigeon Fancier, A Forgotten Tune for Flute, The Goddess. That's a John Cromwell-directed film, but I own it because the screenplay was by Patty Chayefsky. Loves of a Blonde, May Fools, Mystery Train, the Jim Jarmusch film, The Official Story, an Academy Award winner, I believe, Only One Night, a Swedish film shot in Sweden starring Ingrid Bergman, a relatively young Ingrid Bergman, Sugarcane Alley, The Summer of Miss Forbes, and A Very Old Man with Enormous Wings. And finally, We the Living, uh, under the title of Anne Rand's We the Living. Uh, part of the reason I never got around to it was probably the Anne Rand part of that. But I did think it was interesting to see an Italian movie made as a sprawling romantic epic. I uh, just never got around to watching it. That is the gist of the th- of the theatrical films. There are more that I could name. I'll just quickly breeze through. The ones I picked up because I thought they were entertaining. Uh, Flirting, Four Weddings and a Funeral, The Fugitive, Kindergarten Cop, The Mask, The Jim Carrey Vehicle. The Milky Way, a uh, Harold Lloyd vehicle. Some came running, True Believer. Some that I bought them just because the nature of the movie was that it was an experimental film. Edie in Chow, Manhattan. First Name, Carmen by Godard. The Last of England by Derek German. Uh, Monster in a Box, one of Spalding Gray's spoken word films. My Dinner with Andre, similarly, sort of a spoken word film almost. And the most experimental of the lot is Bill Viola's I Do Not Know What It Is I Am Like. Almost a photography experiment as much as a film or laser disc experiment. And that one, I think, bleeds the line between film or experimental film or art house film into documentary. And there's a few documentaries as well. Poetry in Motion, Picasso and Brock, New Ways of Seeing, an art, literally an art documentary. Heavy Petting, which I since bought on two-disc laser set, a fantastic Example of a modern documentary. Hollywood Mavericks. Uh, could have been a TV show, actually. Unknown Chaplin about Charlie Chaplin. The Golden Age of College Football, 1970 to 1979. Mainly bought because it was going to give me a lot of good laser disc quality coverage of the so-called Game of the Century between Oklahoma and Nebraska. Uh, being a Nebraska fan, I really enjoyed that part of it more than any other, in fact. And from a comedy perspective... Uh, Dennis Miller, Black and White. Pretty much what you see today in terms of calling an HBO special on DVD or on streaming. This was a Dennis Miller comedy HBO special on Laserdisc. Which provides me a segue into music. So, music versus movies. Laserdisc blended that idea together really well. And I'm actually a little bit surprised that I own as few titles as I do. Uh, this music segment really is more about, maybe call it 14, 15 titles at the most. But it pretty much ties in with the idea of the people who would connect their home stereo receiver to their television. Again, that home theater kind of thing, where maybe you wouldn't worry too much about whether or not you were playing music through CD or music through Laserdisc. Uh, I have The Cream of Eric Clapton, 
um, a purely music concert series featuring Bruce Coburn. Folk City, the 25th anniversary concert, as I recall, that included Violent Femmes and maybe Laurie Anderson as well. James Galway in concert. Indigo Girls live at the Uptown Lounge. Very early from them, looking like the first couple of albums, um, and looking like the concert that I would have seen in person the first time I saw the Indigo Girls. The Jam, Video Snap, a collection of music videos. Branford Marsalis, uh, Steep was the name of that laser disc. Marcus Roberts, another jazz title, this one called Deep in the Shed. Paul Simon, Graceland, the African concert. Another purely music concert series, this time Coco Taylor. They Might Be Giants, the video. This was an 8-inch laser disc, not a 12-inch laser disc. Two Moon July, The Kitchen presents Two Moon July. That was the one with Laurie Anderson on it, as I recall. Yes, live in 1979. I believe this would have been a tour supporting Tormato. And Simply Mad About the Mouse, a collection of music videos shot by people including like LL Cool J doing either remakes of Disney songs used in Disney film or the TV series or songs that were tributes to Disney. And that gives me the segue I'm really looking for into Disney as a Laserdisc. And now to get more toward the kid Laserdisc and to kind of remind um, from the very beginning, at the time I was making these purchases and getting these purchases at kind of that closeout discount pricing, by and large, I also was the father of two young kids who I wanted to be as interested in quality cinema as I was. And Disney is an excellent intersection there between cinema that is absolutely of a high quality, but also kid-friendly and kid-entertaining. Titles here that I would describe as purely Disney titles, Aladdin, Alice in Wonderland, Beauty and the Beast, the work-in-progress version, Cinderella, Dumbo, The Great Mouse Detective, The Lion King, both Rescuers films, Down Under and The Rescuers, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, and Toy Story. So that kind of gives you a date stamp there from a range. Um, I wasn't buying Laserdiscs much after Toy Story, but a lot of the ones that I was buying were either relatively contemporaneous releases of things like The Lion King, but also going back and trying, when I could, to pick up classics like Dumbo. I've also got Winnie the Pooh and The Blustery Day, uh, two for one, like one disc with two different titles. It also has Winnie the Pooh and A Day for Eeyore on it. And then more into the heading of animation as art, the segue there is Fantasia. My kids never really viewed Fantasia as a kid movie. So if we were looking for entertainment and letting kids pick entertainment, you're far less likely to see that choice being something as great as Fantasia as you would see something relatively more banal like um, The Great Mouse Detective. Uh, tastes are what they are. Beauty and the Beast work in progress was definitely more for me than it was for the kids. The kids would have preferred to have seen it fully animated end to end. It's just the truth. So at some place in the midst of this Disney, uh, titles like Toy Story, for example, you're dealing with animation as art, no doubt about it. But Fantasia may be the best example of that. I also categorize it as a silent film. I think that's completely accurate. And one more title that I generally categorize as a silent film is the Pink Panther Animation Archive. Uh, anything Pink Panther is, with a few exceptions, silent film. Silent film as kid-focused, entertaining, animated cartoons. But under the heading of animation as art, you don't really get much more uh, directly in that wheelhouse as a title that I picked up called The Best of the 22nd International Tourney of Animation. The back cover says... The Tourney of Animation represents the works of world-class animators and animation studios from 10 countries. 
The tourney is a tour de force of animation created from an amazing array of forms. Moving images are created not only from traditional cell animation, but also from cut paper, clay, puppets, oil paintings, watercolors, and even wire. It's a set of, call it 16 different movies, uh, under this heading of, a again, an international tournament of animation. And some of these were actually still very appealing to my kids. I kept this title in the adult uh, Laserdisc part of my alphabet, not in the kids' alphabet, but it wasn't unusual for my kids to at least be tolerant, if not interested, in seeing them. The best examples from this, some of which probably can be found today on YouTube, are Balance, the 1989 Academy Award winner from West Germany, I believe, Cat and Rat, this was one that my kids enjoyed the most. It's intended to be a tour de force of different animation styles, all with sort of a cat chasing a rat or a rat chasing a, chasing a cat, but very, very well done. And uh, The Bedroom, maybe the last one I'll mention in this list from this one. The Bedroom was a Dutch recreation of the Van Gogh painting, uh, The Bedroom in Arles, and in it, The Bedroom actually springs to life spontaneously from the canvas. When it comes to recognizing international animation, though, for me, you don't do better than the International Film Board of Canada. And this gives me a a nice kind of segue in comparison to animation as art and animation for kids at the same time. The Laserdisc I have is called Animation for Kids Volume 1 Cartoon Critters, and it features titles like Every Dog's Guide to Complete Home Safety, and Every Dog's Guide to the Playground. These are actually the absolute best of their form. Uh, Anybody who is having a kid, going to have a kid, uh, going to be a grandparent where young kids are going to be coming to visit, Every Dog's Guide to Complete Home Safety is both entertaining and informative. It is pretty much 50 or 60 or 70 different direct tips on how to make a home safe for a very young child, but told to comic effect. To me, though, when I talk about animation and uh, cartoons for kids and laser discs, and maybe pick the most valuable laser disc or the laser disc itself that led me to say, I've got to own this format because at the time, the only copies I had for anything Johnny Quest were SLP, uh, very caught thin for one of a better word, recordings from televised reruns of Johnny Quest. Uh, aired at 6.05 a.m. on WTBS, if I'm guessing, or something quite like it, maybe TNT. I didn't have great quality copies of Johnny Quest available in any format, including VHS. The DVD releases were in the future, but the Laserdisc releases happened. And I don't want to talk about Johnny Quest as a great title, and in my case, in my history, a great Laserdisc, without talking about a different drummer directly associated with both Johnny Quest and other animation. Hoyt Curtain. I saw a title available on Laserdisc that was not particularly expensive. It was three Johnny Quest episodes on a single CLV version, simple as you like, not a ton of extras. And it was being released through Hanna-Barbera. Johnny Quest Volume 4 is the one. And the titles on it included probably my second favorite, certainly among my favorite, in Turu the Terrible. It also had the Q Missile Mystery and Monsters in the Monastery. Three episodes, three 
iconic, even good, in the case of True of the Terrible, great episodes in the history of the show, available on Laserdisc, available at a quality that my quickly made VHS tapes would never be able to rival. The other thing I liked about Volume 4, which was an improvement over other Johnny Quest Laserdiscs I'd seen and that I hadn't yet been able to get my hands on, was the uh, just the art direction. The thing about a Laserdisc is you're dealing with that big movie idea, that big music and movie idea. There's something about having a 12-inch album in your hands for music title. Maybe even a two-record set with a gatefold that spreads across and gives you uh, information or, or a photo collage or something like that. That the impact you're going to make on a 12-inch canvas is always going to be, well, call it twice as big as the impact that you're going to make from a CD or a DVD. And on the back of Johnny Quest, they made it fun for volume four of this with... In addition to the art direction showing Johnny, Haji, and Bandit, it has sort of this notion that you're somehow part of the team. Your mission, it says, is join Team Johnny Quest for breathtaking animation action as they battle the forces of evil around the world. Your team. Teen adventure Johnny Quest. Johnny's father, inventor scientist Benton Quest. Johnny's faithful companion, Haji. Johnny's canine cohort, Bandit. Interesting it doesn't mention Race Bannon here. That seems like a huge oversight to me. But each one of these three episodes also gets its own blurb. For Monsters of the Monastery, it says, Your Assignment. Unmask the monsters in the monastery. High in the mountains of the distant Kumjung, Johnny and team are told that the fearsome Yeti, abominable snowmen, are terrorizing the kingdom of Dr. Quest's old friend, Raj Guru. Then Johnny and Haji follow Bandit across a dizzying chasm to an ancient monastery, where they stumble upon the dangerous truth behind the monstrous attack. Or, Turu the Terrible, the one that led me to buy this collection in the first place, the one that probably led me to buy a Laserdisc player in the first place. Your assignment, top secret, survive the attack of Turu the Terrible. In search of a mineral vital to the space program, the quest team journeys far up a remote African river. There, the frightened natives say a fiendish sky monster is terrorizing the entire jungle. Join the team's expedition into a prehistoric peril as they confront a giant flying dinosaur known as the Turu and the evil mastermind who controls it. Johnny Quest led me to Laserdisc. I bought two, in fact. When I backtracked and picked up Volume 3 around the same time, I did so because even though I don't think as highly of the episodes Pirates from Below and Werewolf of the Timberland, my favorite all-time Johnny Quest episode is The Invisible Monster. Called to a remote island research lab, Johnny, is com- Johnny and his companions battle a giant invisible energy creature. But how do you fight a monster that you cannot even see? There's a fantastic documentary, and I don't say this lightly, available. I saw it via YouTube, cut into three pieces, each one approximately 45 minutes long. It was put up there, I believe, by Chris Weber. Chris Weber has a blog called chrisweber037.blogspot.com. He is, frankly, a bigger Johnny Quest fan than I am, and I consider myself to be a very big Johnny Quest fan. Don't get me wrong, I've got a critical eye. I recognize that over the years, some of the pieces and parts of Johnny Quest as a franchise are politically incorrect. I agree with a group of uh, mothers online who've posted a somewhat of a, of a light, slight disclaimer that you do need to address as a parent the inherent xenophobia of all of the foreign characters either being helpless, hapless victims or often as not the enemy, the bad guy, the antagonist. There's a lot of caricature, in other words, on that side. 
But I think that's one piece of a much broader picture that Chris Weber, Weber's series of documentaries do just a fantastic job of putting together. If anything, it's perhaps overly detailed and overly comprehensive, with a runtime of the three slices that I saw uh, getting more than two hours and ten minutes. So it's an extremely lengthy. If you put it on broadcast television, which I don't think is even possible for copyright reasons, but if you put it on broadcast television with a standard sequence of commercial breaks, I'm sure it would at least be a three-hour broadcast. I was in a situation where snow and ice forced me into a, uh, well, a, a semi-snow day of, course, of sorts, and during that time of being sort of isolated and blocked in. But with the power running, I sat and watched it all the way through here very recently, in, in part because I'd seen the beginning and I knew the quality was going to be great and was going to answer a lot of questions and provide an incredibly uh, detailed and helpful background information. But also, I'd seen like a six or seven minute clip dealing just with the music of Johnny Quest. And for me, the music of Johnny Quest leads us to our different drummer, Hoyt Curtin. First, just in case there's anybody who doesn't know the answer, and I'm absolutely recommending that this answer be sought out, Johnny Quest, also known as The Adventures of Johnny Quest, at least on its initial broadcast, it was just a primetime Friday night cartoon aimed at kids and adults simultaneously, but a primetime cartoon. It was renamed Johnny Quest later, when shown in syndication, and over the years, it's been shown on every single network. It's been part, it was part of my childhood's Saturday morning lineup every single year that I can recall, and it might have bounced from one network to the other over that period of time, but interesting to remember that it started off as perhaps the first show on Friday night primetime, when it originally aired in 1964 and 65. So Johnny Quest is an American animated science fiction adventure television series about a boy who accompanies this, his scientist father on extraordinary adventures. It was produced by Hanna-Barbera Productions for Screen Gems and created and designed by comic book artist Doug Wildey. This is the first paragraph from the Wikipedia entry for Johnny Quest, the TV series. To me, the most interesting part about the documentary that I saw, and one of the most unique pieces of auteur artistry in Johnny Quest, got to be the music composed by Hoyd Stoddard Curtin. Hoyd Curtin is our different drummer. Not just for Johnny Quest, but that's the connection to my Laserdisc collection. He actually was the, probably the chief musical director for most, if not arguably all, of the classic Hanna-Barbera productions over the years, even to the extent of when he got his opportunity to come back later and compose scores for things he didn't write the original scores for, making really wonderful contributions there as well. Hoyt Curtin, according to his Wikipedia entry, was an American composer and music producer, the primary musical director for Hanna-Barbera Animation Studio from its beginnings with The Rough and Ready Show in 1957 until his retirement in 1986, with the exception of 1965-72 to when the primary music director instead was Ted Nichols. In the 1950s, Curtin was an in-demand composer for TV commercials, and jingles, if you will. He first met Hannah and Barbera when he worked on a Schlitz beer commercial they were producing for MGM in 1957. I've got a quote here from Curtin. About two weeks later, they called me and, and had a lyric they read over the phone. Could I write a tune for it? I called back in five minutes and sang it to them. Silence. <laughs> Uh-oh. I bombed out. The next thing I heard was a deal to record it. Rough and ready. 
At that moment, they had quit MGM and started their own company, and all of our first main titles were done in that fashion. Huckleberry Hound, Quick Drama Craw, etc. Kind of over the phone, if you'll interpret what Hoyt Curtin is saying. A very uh, you know, spontaneous sort of composition, for want of a better word. The most important thing to do to cite Curtin and give him the credit he deserves in the context of kid movies, and in my case, kid laser discs, is just kind of rattle off, again, via Wikipedia, a list of titles. Quoting, He was the composer of many of the Hanna-Barbera cartoon's popular theme songs, including The Flintstones, until 1981, Top Cat, The Jetsons, Johnny Quest, Super Friends, Josie and the Pussycats, The Smurfs, the new Scooby-Doo movies and all its spinoffs, until 1986. So again, maybe the classic theme of Scooby-Doo belongs elsewhere, but he was able to contribute to Scooby-Doo as a franchise because he was part of the Hanna-Barbera Scooby-Doo movies and other Scooby-Doo series and spin-offs along the way. In other words, the music of my own childhood, and to some lesser degree the music of my kids' childhood, has a lot to do with Hoyt Curtin. If I had not seen this documentary that Chris Webber put out there, I don't know how long it might take me to stumble across it. The other thing I don't know if I take the time to do is to willfully isolate myself in the music and away from the images. When you're born in an era when the Flintstones and the Jetsons already existed, and you grew up watching them more in rerun than in any sort of first run, you just sort of take for granted that they've always been there. But Johnny Quest came out not long after I was born. It was it emerged from that same era where I was too young to have seen it quote-unquote first run. And yet, Curtin's music is definitely the soundtrack to all of that, and really more. Rather than composing uh, themes around lush string arrangements or tight, minimalistic performance, uh, he brought in kind of a full orchestra, a brass band, if you will. It's the other influence of Curtin, and this was, again, primarily aimed at cartoons of the time, is to bring in a full brass section with a trombone segment that in the Johnny Quest theme has been described as almost impossible to play as written. There's a high degree of musicality and artistry to the work itself. You put that together with the images that it was supporting and you get my different drummer, Hoyt Curtin. shouldn't surprise anyone that I also have another Hanna-Barbera collection bought for my kids on Laserdisc. It says this, This laser video disc is jam-packed with hand-picked cartoon favorites from Hanna-Barbera's vaults in some of the funniest animation ever created. This special five-part Laserdisc leads off with the very first Hanna-Barbera cartoon, Rough and Ready and Planet Pirates. Then there are two episodes from Three Goofy Guards, also known as Yippee, Yappy, and Yahooey. Next, Touche Turtle and his sidekick Dum Dum chase a giant gorilla in Zero Hero and a green monster in Lake Serpent. Then Augie Doggy and Doggy Daddy turn up for laughs in two classics, followed by the inevitable Snaggle Puss in two more collections. Many, though perhaps not all of those, were orchestrated by the work of Hoyt Curtin. And part of my laser disc collection, in part to make sure that my kids understood the full range of the history of animation. If there are kids today who have never seen the Looney Tunes, that actually makes me extremely sad. 
I'd say the same thing for the Pink Panther. And while I won't elevate Adam Ant as a cartoon property to that level, I also have another laser disc of just Adam Ant. Um, the whole like 60 minutes long is just a series of Adam Ant cartoons. Once again, orchestrated by Hoyt Curtin. And once again, one of my kids' favorites. If I had to try to wrap up this different drummer segment by breezing through the rest as a completist for what's going to be a longer show than I might have imagined, eulogizing the death of the Laserdisc, in particular the death of the Laserdisc from my own personal collection. Other kid animation from studios not Disney, not Hanna-Barbera, would include An American Tale, Fern Gully, The Last Rainforest. My kids like that one way more than I did, at least my daughter. The Land Before Time, an entire series of movies that my kids probably enjoyed more than they would like to admit later on. I'm not sure that this was Don Bluth's best work, but it did produce a long-running series. Rockadoodle, The Tailor of Gloucester, From a Christmas Perspective, How the Grinch Stole Christmas, Back to Back with Horton Here's a Who, that is some Hanna-Barbera there, there, I believe, Frosty the Snowman and the Little Drummer Boy, Santa Claus is Coming to Town, those are Rankin-Bass titles. Clearly, I could not get my hands on a copy of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, because I guarantee I would have if I could have. And then, on the live-action side, so less about animation, less about cartoon, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, the original, the Muppet movie, the Great Muppet Caper, the Love Bug, which I can remember seeing in the theaters with my parents as a kid, and really enjoying, a Little Princess, which I can remember seeing in the theaters with my daughter when she was a little kid, and really enjoying, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. And that wraps up the kids section of this. But then I also threw in one more title that I didn't have indexed on a spreadsheet when I was trying to figure out whether I wanted to make video cassette recordings of my Laserdiscs, which is an ironic concept, right? But at the time that it was clear that Laserdisc was not going to be viable, it was going to be replaced by something smaller, like DVD, the question became, well, which which one of my pieces of equipment. Which one of my players is going to be viable longer? Is my one Laserdisc player more likely to break or lose a part that can't be replaced, something other than a belt, for example? Or am I likely to have no functioning VHS player in the house? And it was obvious to me that the multiple VHS players were going to have a longer shelf life of usefulness than the single Laserdisc player was going to have. So I actually gone through a process of trying to figure out, well, Am I still buying Laserdiscs? And if I do, should I be buying them and turning them immediately to VHS? Not unlike a lot of my friends used to do when I was in high school, of buying LP, playing it one time to make an audio cassette version of it to protect the vinyl, and then using cassettes via Walkmans and car stereos and boomboxes and things of that nature, and almost never, or at least relatively rarely, playing vinyl LP. I was the opposite. I would always play the vinyl LP. I liked the big music. I preferred the format. And truth be told, if, if I knew for sure that I could have relied on the performance of a Laserdisc player over time, I preferred the big movies. I actually liked the format. A DVD adds something to it in the sense of using a menu to segregate bonus features from feature film in a much more intuitive way, um, eliminating the need to flip the disc halfway through a movie, all those other sort of things. But all the same, I'm clearly nostalgic about the format because I've kept it all this time. The last Laserdisc I bought, purchased through eBay, probably used copy, title I wasn't able to find at the time on either VHS or DVD, that suddenly I realized, here's Robert Aldridge, she's a director I like, he did The Dirty Dozen, for example, and I remember seeing one time on television a movie called Twilight's Last Gleaming, 
conjures memories of my father, uh, political drama, uh, threat of nuclear war, couple of um, you know rogue kind of military personnel, people in, in charge of managing and pushing the button, kind of you know, going off the script, uh, creating havoc for the president. So both a political intrigue, an action-adventure movie, where the stakes are nothing less than worldwide thermonuclear war, making a serious film out of some of the same fodder that Stanley Kubrick used for ironic comedy and Dr. Strangelove, Twilight's Last Gleaming is the last Laserdisc that I ever bought. And um, it won't be the last one I let go of. The last one I let go of is almost certainly going to be something by Luis Manuel, because I've replaced Brazil, like for like, with the same box set edition on DVD that I once bought on Laserdisc. It might actually be Belle de Jour, featuring the actress who was almost the different drummer this go-round. But if you can tell where your heart is based on your actions, and if I look at my behavior the last couple of weeks gearing up for this particular lengthy recording, uh, cracking open the time capsule of a particular mode of entertainment that I'm about to say goodbye to forever, I've read a couple of articles about Catherine Deneuve and featuring her most recent public statements. But yesterday, while I was fixing dinner, I listened to more than an hour of Hoyt Curtin TV soundtrack recordings, most of them written as theme and incidental music for Johnny Quest, but there's much more there. Clearly, it makes me feel like I've made the right decision, both in the way I've esteemed and collected laser discs and in the way I'm viewing them on their way out the door. This is a particular piece of technology that served an important moment in time. I don't know if we have director commentary and actor commentary soundtracks the way we have them today, if it wasn't for the technology taking us to Laserdisc on our way to DVD, that may or may not be an exaggeration, but it's also the truth of how it actually played out. If you'd like to put some dialogue into this conversation yourself, I can be reached at IC underscore Greg at Hotmail.com. All of the recordings throughout the history of Inappropriate Conversations and Walk the Earth, the spinoff podcast in this, in, from me, um, can be found at inappropriateconversations.org. I also have a Facebook page for both Inappropriate Conversations and separately for Walk the Earth. And they're mixed together and blended in some ways on Twitter, where I can be found as IC underscore Greg. If the scope of the historic material of these two podcasts seems daunting, it probably is. I've tried to address that to a certain degree by using SoundCloud. I can be found on SoundCloud as IC underscore Greg. There, in addition to the blurbs that I posted at the time I originally put out all of these podcasts going back to March of 2010, I've also picked a clip, an audio clip. So SoundCloud is a way of listening to just a piece and a part, maybe a crucial or an interesting, to me, piece or part of all of those historic podcasts in this series. Lastly, uh, obviously, Inappropriate Conversations as a podcast can be found on iTunes, uh, anywhere you actually do your podcatching, for example, including Stitcher Smart Radio, where you can stream and listen to podcasts on the go. Thanks for listening. Thank you.
show is a proud member of the pride 48 podcasting network check out other great podcasts at pride 48.com slash shows